If you guys are ready, I'll pretend to be ready. Okay, well, really fast here. we got a couple of things I wanted to talk about before I started the lecture. First off, um, Passover is this April 5th on Wednesday, and that's a Wednesday crucifixion Passover, which aligns perfectly with the biblical Passover, the Wednesday crucifixion of Christ. That is the sign of Jonah, as opposed to these manufactured, pretend mathematical signs of Jonah, where, where, where they have a Friday crucifixion, and of course, that's not 72 hours. I'm sorry, that's not three days and three nights. So this is a big deal to me. I keep thinking something is significant going to happen as this world careens and gets destroyed morally and intellectually. We are being one of the dumbest countries that maybe has ever been on the map. We can't figure out anything anymore with respect. We don't know what a woman is, for example. And this kind of ignorance is darkness. And so I'm interested to see this alignment now this year. And 2023 is a significant year in my view. And we'll see what happens uh, as it goes on. But we'll be back on April the 16th. Um, oh, and somebody, uh, Dr. Dan, right? Do I have that correct? Okay, he wanted to know whether or not Passover could come on a Saturday night. And they can. And they do every so often, about every 10 years or so. And there's a protocol, there's a system the Jewish people have to handle a Saturday Passover. So it does happen. It's really, uh, like I said, it's not uh, very common. I don't think I remember one in my uh, brief tenure here as a lecturer. So we have this fantastic first fruits this time. Sign of Jonah first fruits is what we have. So I suspect I could be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. If I'm wrong about this, everybody can say, aha. But sometimes I get really lucky. And I'm watching what China's doing. I was telling uh, Supper Dave here that China is doing very different things. Uh, what they're doing to the Uyghurs is, is incomprehensible evil. Now they have control of Russia because Russia needs India and it needs China in order to sell its oil. So they have to do what the Chinese are saying. And the Chinese want most of uh, what they believe is their territory back from Russia. They want Vladivostok. I can barely say they, they want that city back. They believe that that's part of their territory, and they're going to seize the land from Russia, and Russia has no choice but to give it to them. It's going to destabilize Russia some more. Uh, and when that happens, they're going to panic at some point. I don't think Putin is going to survive much longer, and this is going to be an instable or unstable Russia, and that leads them to do something, how do I put it, desperate. That could be Ezekiel 38. Okay, so here we go. We got that out of the way. You might, oh, I didn't. I'm not done yet. You might notice that I have new glasses. Let me look in the mirror because I can see myself in the mirror, which is not good news, but I can do it. And I can see the television and I can drive and do all kinds of wonderful things. And we were, we were able to get glasses for me and glasses for the lovely Lori because of DBDTM. And he will know who that is, I hope. And we're very, yeah, thankful for what happened. I also got a little bit of my tooth fixed. So we we took all of our medical systems and combined them into one little avenue here. I still have teeth problems. Uh, I have face problems, uh, like you're talking about. I don't think I can get the face fixed for a while. It's going to take a really good surgeon. Somebody that designed the system. Okay, enough of that. I'm going to move the glasses into position number two. Hopefully I don't hit the microphone, which I did. 
And here we go. Off we are. April the 2nd, 2023, lecture discussion number 195 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. And if you were here March 19th, lecture 194, and by here I mean the vast Internet audience, you possibly will remember the second half if you listen to any of that where we began to investigate the contextual essence of Ephesians chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And if you're just joining in, you know, uh, you just found us by some means, having been otherwise committed, let's just say, for example, that you have an after, afternoon nap, there's some dormancy, and you, or maybe you fell asleep in the last lecture, then I have to reset these. Uh, I, I, I intend to do it anyway. I want to reset the disputed controversies of the matter. Uh, and, and for those of you who have found us by some random process, you brought, you came by that. This is your, and this is your very first Cliffsidian or Cliffsidian, whichever you prefer lecture. Uh, we please accept our condolences. Uh, you're not alone. Commiseration is readily available. And take solace in the fact that 50 to 75% of cliffside regulars utilize my lectures as a mechanism to defeat insomnia. That's what we know. And so I'm for those who struggle with insomnolence. And I've said in the past that Medicare recognizes my innate ability to triumph over wakefulness. I'm, I'm legendary. I can just knock people out without even thinking about it now. And I attempt to demonstrate that with each discourse that I do. Ooh, I'm hearing some noise. No, what's making the noise? Is it this? Let me see here. Go ahead, push mute on on line one. That's not doing it. There's something causing that feedback. It's a feedback loop. Push mute again.
Test, test, test. Sounds good. Should be okay. Okay, sorry about that. And oh, we seem to have problems more than we can anticipate. Okay, anyway. Where was I? Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Uh, they are routinely misjudged. Distorted is probably more applicable as an adjective. And the distortions are intentional. People are, there are theologians that should know better, but they intentionally distort Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 for some preconceived notion. In other words, they're trying to support a system that, they, that is not going to be supportable. In order, they, they want to bolster what's obviously a drowning vessel or a sinking vessel, and they, they're going to need a lot more sump pumps than they've got. Wrote this thing. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are not lifeboats as they will think, as they insist. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, they're the iceberg, frankly, to the doomed Titanic that is absolute predestination as it's applied to the salvific process. Let me repeat that. There is predestination, but the predestination is not applied to salvation, to the salvific process. And note that the Titanic was torn into three pieces. And I have chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians that I'm presenting to you today as three things that they cannot overcome. Just saying. To state the status of the matter, the predestination view that prevails in the church generally with respect to Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 completely is in opposition to the self-evident discernible text. In other words, what they say it is, is not what it is. Do they know it? I believe they do know it. I'm convinced that most of them are aware of the countermanding positions, and yet they refuse them because they love their position. I made that point a couple of weeks ago. The Apostle Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is not addressing or describing individualized salvific predestination in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. He is not doing that. He is instead joyously He's excited. He's triumphantly describing the revealing of the third mystery. Primarily, that's what he's doing. He has recognized that he is trying to get across the third mystery to the Ephesians and to the Romans. We'll get to that in a minute. So that's what he's describing. And and once you realize that the third mystery is primarily being described by Paul, then you know that the sixth mystery and the seventh mystery and the tenth mystery are also involved because all all of those are like this. You can make the case for five of them are interconnected. And some, I believe correctly, also include the eleventh mystery. So I've got five mysteries here tied into the third mystery, and Paul is trying to get that expressed in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Of the eleven mysteries of God, five of them are tied up here. So Ephesians 1 through 3 is, again, involved in the five principally. It's the third mystery, but all of that is together. 
And if you don't know that, then you're doomed to, to falling into the ditch again. Off you will go. And you should know it. And what is that third mystery? The third mystery is this uniting, this unification of the Jews and the Gentiles, which no one ever considered would ever occur. And the, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, let me put this in up on the board here, what's called the body. The body of Christ. Now, you should immediately start asking questions when you see the body of Christ. We're so used to it. But why the body? Why not the head of uh, head of Christ? Why not the arms? But no, it's the body of Christ. Why? Anyway, Paul is just absolutely thrilled beyond explanation. He is just exultant and to write Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. And that's where he announces that he, Paul, was given the dispensation of grace of God by which Paul became the steward of this third mystery that was not given to the Jewish prophets but to the apostles of Christ. Paul is the only one that knows this at this point and he can't wait to tell everybody that will ever possibly listen to him and he's extraordinarily excited about it. That is what Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3 is all about. That is the context. And again, it was not given to the Jewish prophets, but it was given to the apostles of Christ. And that is an absolutely significant position. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1. I'm sorry, Ephesians 3. 1. Let me get to it here. 1 through 6. Where am I? Okay. Here's what Paul says with the, with the Holy Spirit absolutely encouraging this and, and, and frankly uh, manufacturing it. So we'll start at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us, again, I started talking about us and you last time we had this discussion. He chose us. Who is us? I made the, the point that us is not the Ephesus, not the Ephesians. I'm, I'm in one. What did I say? Three? Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm messed up. I got, I got discombobulated here. That means, because that's what I read last week, and I, for some reason, wrote it wrong here. Okay, here we go. Chapters 3, 1 through 6. Thank you, Terry, for getting me back on. I was off and running in a completely wrong direction. No. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, so here he is describing that he is the one that got the mystery from God himself through the Holy Spirit. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have writ briefly written already by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partaken of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister to, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Okay? 
That is Paul saying to you what Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3 is about. It's about the third mystery. I should read 3.8 on. Let me go to verse 8. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's telling everyone that will listen to him, this was given to me. Me, Paul, and I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Again, the topic here, the the subject here, the focus here is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. How long are the the ages? When When was this hidden? God who created all things through Jesus Christ through the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, known by the church to the principalities and power in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Let me continue here to verse 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, for which is your glory. Okay, the point is, yea, a point that Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3 are never referring to the individualized salvation. They're never doing that. Certainly not predestination of individualized salvation. But instead, what what is going on here is it's exposing the hidden. He calls it the hidden. Okay, I see we got another, we're starting to feed back again, aren't we? Can we handle it, that hum? Let me see a second here. Go ahead and mute me really fast here. Remove the mute. Did it work? Okay, let's keep moving. Have to deal with that at some other time. <coughs> Excuse me. The point being, yeah, a point. Ephesians one and Ephesians two and Ephesians three is not about individualized salvation, and yet it is constantly twisted to be that. I'm going to try to fix it one more time, Terry. better? You can hear it. I can't hear it. Okay. Well, we have to. That's the best I can do. He's calling it the. What he's doing is he's not talking about predestination. He's not talking about individual salvation. But instead, he's exposing the hidden in God. That is what this chapter is about. And the manifold wisdom, the multifaceted, the multi-sided, the multi-layered, infinite purpose plan that God has. Paul is revealing it. And now it's going to be made known to the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Again, ask, why does he call this the body of Christ? And therefore, obviously it has something to do with the communion system, doesn't it? But it's more than that. And not only to the body of Christ, the church, and the Jews, 
but also to the angelic realm, the principalities. The, who's, who's the principalities? According to the eternal purpose. So there's an eternal purpose to reveal to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places this third mystery. And that would be the unfallen or the faithful angels, and that would be the fallen angels. And so what is the obvious question? And the obvious question is obvious. Why are angels given the third mystery? Not just the Gentiles, not just the Jews, not just the apostles, not just the saints, but also the angels, the fallen and unfallen, the principalities and powers. So I have the principalities and I have the powers. The principalities are the faithful angels. The powers are the fallen angels. So this obviously connects to 1 Corinthians 4.9, which you might remember, and I hope you do. I talked about this at length. The deaths of the apostles are put on display also for the angelic realm. The angels watch the apostles be murdered. They are a spectacle. The apostles are a spectacle in death for the angels. Why is that? Well, I'm saying to you that there's a combination of both of these things. They both are doing similar, they're, they're doing similar purposes to the, uh, the angelic realm. And so why does God want the angelic realm to know about the death of the apostles and the mystery that is the third mystery? Okay, obviously there are elements of the body of Christ. Now, I should, I should emphasize body of Christ. Because I have the body of the last Adam and the body of the first Adam. Genesis 2, 7 and 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. To repeat the obvious, the third mystery has variegation. In other words, it's got spectrum of sides and angles. There's a, there's a tremendous complexity here. And it goes all over scripture. So we see, for example, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. Christ makes a proclamation to the fallen angels during his entombment the sign of Jonah. During the sign of Jonah, Christ makes a proclamation to the fallen angels imprisoned in the abyss. He tells them something. What does he tell them? Why does God uncover his plans to the angelic kingdom? He calls it again the hidden. Why is it the hidden? What is hidden here? And Why does he reveal it? Keep in mind it's improper for us to place God inside of time. So you have to be very careful about that. He alone can refer to himself as inside of time. So we're puny, fragile, mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back, sheep. That's what we are. And we don't get to say things about him in time, especially about when or whether or not he's in time or out of time. Mark 6.34, Ezekiel 34.30, Matthew 10.16. We, we can't conceive timelessness. And with that disclaimer, what event you believe, but ask the question, what event do you believe is traceable to God whereby he is going to disclose his third mystery, the hidden, to the angelic realm? So what causes this? And again, that's an inside of time statement in which he does not have that. I don't have that ability to communicate that because of my frailness. The lamb slain, Revelation 13.8. Uh, of the foundations of the creation. That's what it says. It doesn't say from the foundation. It says of. The word should be translated of. That's an inside. I'm sorry. That's an outside of time. Uh, rel- uh, ah, can't even speak. Getting all messed up today. It's an outside of time reference there. Of the foundations of the creation. The lamb slain before time. 
is what that says. The purpose of God is the lamb slain before time. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29, of which God foreknew. There's your predestination. There is predestination, and what the predestination is, is the purpose of God, which is Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Christ slain is the purpose. Hopefully that begins to get through. Obviously the lamb slain is before time. So that we know. The triune Godhead conceived and installed time, as as everyone knows that, I hope. For today, consider that the crucifixion of Christ is revealed to the faithful angels and the evil angels. And I want you to think about why that is so. What is the purpose for that? The why of the lamb slain is, is the given. Why is it given? And, that is, and, and I'm sorry, it corresponds to the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the Jews and the Gentiles unified in the church. And Israel will be restored, is what this third mystery is saying. And there will be a remarried to God. Israel will be not only restored, but remarried to God. He is treating the nation of Israel, his nation of Israel, as an adulterous, divorced wife currently. Again, that's an inside of time reference, and it can't do that. He's also not simultaneously treating the church as a virgin bride, about to be married, betrothal. God desires somehow, some way, for whatever purpose, that Satan's army of demons know this. Satan's army of demons has to know the third mystery and also the angels who did not leave their estate. Again, I can't do this enough. Why does he want the angelic realm to know all of these things? He hid it from them. Why is he revealing it now through Paul? What is the cause of this hiddenness? What is it? What is traceable to this event? And, and clearly we must include now Ezekiel 28, 16, Psalm 10, Genesis 3, 4, Isaiah 14, Job 1, and Job 2. All of those and a lot more. That's the Judas Satan, for example, throwing of the silver to the temple. Why did Judas throw the silver to the temple? Into the temple. And I'm going to say he threw it to the temple potter because there was a temple potter in every temple structure, or in this particular temple structure, and he made vessels of clay and stone, and you throw money to him. In this case, silver, and that's Zechariah, as we've gone over before. But we have all of these things now that are connected here. We have Judas and Satan. That's Judas Satan. That's a hyphen right there. I have Satan Judas. I have the Satan man, or the seed of the of the serpent, serpent. And he's throwing the silver to the temple potter, Matthew 27, 5. I have the kiss from Satan Judas at John 13, 27, Matthew 26, 49. I have the imprisonment of Satan, Revelation 22 through 3. And I have Satan must be released. After that imprisonment for a thousand years, why must he be released? What's going on? And how does all of that fit together? Well, immediately we have to consider Genesis 3-4, Job 1, Job 2, as relevant. That is where the lie of Satan is demonstrated and articulated for us to understand what it really is, at least parts of it. And the lie of Satan is, is nothing but consistent. But this means that the third mystery contains, and I'm going to say this badly, the third mystery contains the response of God. And that is a time reference, and that's not foundationally sound.
Okay? Therefore, if it's all tied to the Genesis 3-4 and Job 1, Job 2, then the third mystery is somehow a rebuttal to the lie that God has withheld free will from mankind. So this is what Paul is trying to get across. This is why the angels have to hear it. This is why Christ goes to them and proclaims to the ones who are imprisoned in the abyss. The lie again is that God has withheld free will from mankind and from animals and angels, and thus God is the author of evil. He is the one that caused evil, and he decreed evil. Last lecture, number 184, page 18, paragraph 2, I brought the olive tree, Romans 11, 16 through 24 focusing on the root of the olive tree that is holy. So we know that the root of the olive tree is Christ himself, don't we? So thus the root is Christ. And the branches that remain, the branches that were broken off, and the branches that were grafted in. So we have these meanings of the olive tree. And that requires that we go about gathering information from the mustard tree. See what I'm going to do? Have I got an olive tree? I've got to find out the mustard tree. That's Matthew 13, 31 through 32. And then I've got the tree of life, obviously, in Genesis I have the tree of life in Revelation 22:2 and Genesis 2:9. Next, I got Revelation 11:4. I got to include that because I got Zechariah 4:11 through 14, which describes two olive trees and two olive branches from whom oil is dripped. We know that oil is an is a uh, function of the Holy Spirit. It's, it is a anointing oil, identified so as in Scripture. And the, the olive branches, oil is dripped. From them and the receptacles of the two gold pipes of the lampstand collect them. That's Zechariah 4, 2 through 6. So what do I got now? Zechariah 4 makes it certain that the lampstand and the two olive trees are to be analyzed as a singular item. So here we are. We got trees and we got lampstands and we got olive oil. We got all of this stuff. We got the, we got the Mount of Olives. And incredibly complicated. I have a, I have the golden lampstand, as you know, Exodus 25:31-40. It's a temple piece that testifies of God. And in order to begin to comprehend the the uh, what's going on here, the great volume that's within the, the design of the golden lampstand, it's necessary to go get all the other temple pieces, because all those temple pieces all they're one unit. So first I've got to figure out what's going on with the lampstand and all of the pieces of the lampstand. Then I've got to go with all the pieces, for example, of the Ark of the Testimony and the table of shewbread and the tent itself and the veil and the bronze laver and the, and the altar. I've got to get all those pieces and all the pieces that are in those pieces and I've got to put them all together in order to understand what? The third mystery. For today, the lampstand and the olive tree are wrapped together with the third mystery. Just know that for today. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3. So when you begin to study the subject, you have to say to yourself, this is where I've got to go. And all of these are subject then, uh, are the subject of uh, Romans 11, 11 through 32. The mystery that we should never be ignorant of. Don't be ignorant of that mystery. Lest we think we might be wise in our own opinion that we will, uh, as to what God will do with regard to the blindness of Israel. Now I have heard my whole life, Different denominations say that they are new, the new Israel. They are Israel. God has given up on Israel. And we are Israel, and we're going to wear the clothes of the priesthood, and we're going to look like Israel, Israelites, and we're going to act like Israelites, and we're going to talk like Israelites, but guess what? You're not Israel. You're the Gentile. You're the branches that are grafted in. That's a wonderful thing. But don't be ignorant of the mystery. 
Don't be saying th- things about it, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3 that aren't tied to the third mystery, because I'd be ignorant. That's what the Bible is saying, in my opinion. And if I'm able to accomplish just one thing as it relates to Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, I hope that it is in the context of the third mystery. To repeat that, do not be ignorant of the third mystery. That is the subject of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. That's Romans 11.25. Being ignorant as to the Holy Spirit through the agency of Paul's purpose here of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and Romans 11, that's going to lead to doctrinal catastrophe. And that's what I see happening in Ephesians, in the commentaries on Ephesians 1 through 3. And thinking that these guys, these guys and, and women too, thinking that they are wise, they become ignorant. Uh, and again, they actually are the opposite of Romans 11.25. I wish that you should not be ignorant, and yet they are willfully ignorant. They have to know. They don't care. It's frustrating. And it's not unlike Romans 1.22. Thinking again that they are wise, they become foolish. And in the case of teaching that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are indicating that it's outright, it's consummate uh, predestination of the individual. Well, that's just destructive failure. Because uh, again, Joel 2.32 and Romans 10.13. It's almost a perfect wrong. It's so badly out of phase with what's really going on. Intentional wrong. And I'm not surprised when reading the writings of those who advocate for Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I'm not, again, I'm not surprised when I read those, these writings that they advocate for evidentiary predestination. They, they, They absolutely make this argument. And when they do it, I notice that they accompany their treatises with a palatable air of hubris. They act as though their position is superior to anyone who disagrees. Uh, We're still struggling with this buzz, aren't we? Let me try one more time. Go ahead and mute. It's the leveler that's doing it? Oh, I bet you're right. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and you come up and down and you say, see, 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 look at here, look at here, look at here, but they have no idea that this is Ephesians 2. I don't know if you do, 
They were being disingenuous, which is rare. They don't care. They say, I don't care if it does apply to the third nation. I'm going to cherry pick out what I wanted to believe. And they jump up and down as if that's correct. And you have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, you never carry your own soul. And again, I desire, 1135 Romans, I desire that you should that you should be ignorant lest you become conceited in your petulant opinion. Now, I added commentary to 1135 Romans. Because that's exactly what he's saying in my view. He's saying, stop this. I modified the text. I added commentary, but I think you'll find that I'm accurate here. I am on the precipice of 70 years of age. Can you see it? Can you look? It's awful. I'm one month away. I cannot tolerate this anymore. I won't. Those who baldly or boldly, boldly, boldly would work. I'm an expert in baldness. Those who bald faced and boldly pronouncing the hopelessness of predestination. Calvin was correct. It's a horrible, evil doctrine. And it somewhat reminds me of the blackbird who seeks to devour the seed of the sower. They're coming down and saying, you cannot be saved. Tough luck. And so they grab that seed. And we are not, we're instructed to joyfully announce hope and redemption and resurrection. That's what we're to do to the person of Christ. We're never supposed to preach despair and hopelessness and fatalism and discouragement. That's not what we do. Be of good cheer is what we're supposed to be. And, and predestination or individualized salvation is the opposite of be of good cheer. It's the opposite of hope. It is fatalism. However, God does indeed predestine. That's true. He foreknew his purpose. Romans 8, Romans 8, 28-29. His purpose is the lamb slain, as I said, before the foundations of the creation, which is the heavens and the universe as well. It's the entire creation and the earth, Revelation 13. God also predestined the marriage of his wife, the symbol for the nation of Israel. He predestined that. And of course, he predestined the bride of Christ, the symbol of the body of Christ. That was hidden from the angels, and now he's revealed that that was also predestined. He foreknew the angelic kingdom. He foreknew the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. All of those were predestined. These are not individual specific, but they're umbrelling constructs. They're denoting institutional framework. He did the same with the minerals and the plants. He did not predestine individual frameworks. There's no such thing. What about Romans 19, 18? I'm sorry, what about Romans 9, 18? Someone can shout at me and sing the Lord and shout. And to the shouting shouters, I ask, have you noticed the coupling of Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 3, Romans 11, and Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3? They're almost literally the same. Paul says in Romans 9, 2, I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. Why? Why does he say that? Easy question. Why does Paul grieve? He wishes that he, Paul, was accursed. He, I'll be accursed. And his countrymen are saved in this place, Romans 9, 3. That's what he's talking about in Romans. How does, what's the connection to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3? They're all, again, they're the same subject. Romans 9 is the context. 
He says he, he's a, he wants to be a curse in his country and then saved in his place. It, that's the rejection of the God-man is what they have done by the nation of Israel. He would rather that they believed and he did first. They rejected Jesus Christ the God-man. That's the nation of Israel that did that, not individuals. The nation, the ruler, religious rulers, Israel rejected the gospel. The word of and the gospel forces the word of God, so they rejected the word of God. John 1, 1, the word of God is a person of Jesus Christ. And Paul mourns, not for individuals, because he knows better. He's mourning for the nation of Israel. Romans 10, 1, Paul says this, my, heart desi- my heart's desire and prayer to God for the nation of Israel is that they may be saved. That's what he grieves, grieves over. He doesn't list a bunch of individuals. But he, he adds this, Romans 10, 14. How then can they call on him, Joel 3, 32, in whom they have not believed? Give attention to the need to believe Christ. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. Some will not believe. Why not? Why wouldn't they believe? What stops them? Why is it that you do not believe? What is the not believe process? What about, says the what about is Romans 9.18. They say, what about 9.18? Romans 9.19-24. Well, what's the context? Do we have definitive translations of the Greek word there? Actually, this is the only place that Greek word is there, and it's translated by Pastor Bill. And I want to know, did any of the what about you notice that Romans 9.19-24 is one very long question. One huge question. I don't have time to read it. Read it and you'll see it's a question. One question. One, 19 to 24, one question. And what's the answer to that question? That's the answer to the answer. He says so. Look it up. He answers with Hosea. Hosea is the answer to that long question. So, what is Hosea about, you all say? What is Hosea about? Have you ever read Hosea? Do we, what about it? Know what Hosea is about? Well, what about it? You should know what Hosea is about. Is the context of Hosea also the third mystery? What do you think? Well, that would be a long answer, but the answer, the long answer is yes. When Hosea is properly understood, and the Hebrew name Hosea means he saves, what it means. The answer to that long question in Romans 9, 19-24 is he saves. That's the answer. It is attached to Joshua in Numbers 13, 16. That was Joshua's name, essentially. It's a little change to Joshua. Yehoshua, I'm sorry, Yehoshua, means salvation. He saved. So obviously the prophet Hosea will be referred to Joshua, which is Jesus, which is salvation. That's where we need to resolve the, why the book of Hosea is the answer to the question of Romans 9, 19, 24. The verses that trigger these questions are Exodus 33, 19, Romans 9, 15, and Exodus 14, 1, Romans 9, 18. And we're going to discover that Romans 9, 18 is being quoted as conclusive validation that God is the one who predestines and individual salvation. That's what you are reading, and that's what you are here. That's what you preach about the people who sent you. That's what the predestinarian predestination was saying. 
and it does not mean that it means once again, let's go ahead and put this in the picture one of the Therefore, he had mercy on whom he will, and whom he wills, he hardens. And go down here to verse 25. And he says also in Hosea, when he comes in, Why have you made me like this? Is a question. Do not the Father have the power over faith? Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he, and whom he hardens. He also says in Hosea, Hosea answers all of his problems. We've got to begin. Let's go ahead again and go back. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. What's going on here? What's that mean? We're going to need to establish God's definition. Do I have five minutes? Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and Is that old King James? Okay. Now let's see one. Hosea is not going to five minutes. Yeah, well, that's, that's Hosea. Yeah. So, uh, and again, you, you have to you have to go and look at as much as you can and figure out what, what that means. If you went through a Hebrew term to help you determine, you can see the uh, different ways in which they demonstrate that type of name. No, you, that's not it. Okay, we're going to need to. We've got to establish God's definitions, not my definitions, not your definitions, and certainly not the definitions of the predestinational people. We can't, we can't accept their definition. We have to know God's definition. So we begin again to say that that Greek word for hardened is used elsewhere as, as obstinate or stubborn, or how about this one, stiff neck. It's not incorrect then to read this as whom he wills, he stubborns. Deuteronomy 2.30 being a Hebrew complement to this. Stubborn towards what? What are they stubborn towards? What are they stiffened against? Well, Paul again says so. They're stiffened against Christ. They're stiffened against salvation. What is the stiffening process? How does one become stubborn? What is God's definition of mercy? I will have mercy on whom I will, and whom he will be hardened. He's stubborn. He obstinates. Those are not words. I'm making words for today. In fact, I'm not making words forever. He can stop me. I'm stubborn. What's his definition of mercy? Tell me what mercy is. How God manifests mercy. How does he do it? What's it mean? We've got Exodus 33, 19. God tells beautifully with Romans 9, 14 through 16. I will make all my goodness pass before you. That's what he said. I will make all my goodness pass before you. That's mercy. All his goodness passing before you is mercy. So what's not mercy? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So I have compassion. I have goodness. I have gracious. I have good graciousness. And I have great balls of fire. Goodness, gracious, great balls of fire. Okay. I have hearing and knowing in the God, the God of creation. Moses was prohibited from seeing the face of God, Exodus 33 20. I hope you remember that. That changed to Deuteronomy 34 20, where he said, The only one that ever saw God's face was Moses. Saw him face to face. Can't see my face, no, you can see my face. So there's, there's a different dispensation in the world. To repeat, what is the mercy of God as we define it? Pay close attention to Romans 9 20. Because it says this. Does not the Father have power over the faith and the sin not to make one vessel for honor and one to dishonor? That's 21. That's 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? That's a question. That's answered by his own. Will the thing say the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Rhetorical question, what's the answer? Why have you made me like this? Will the thing formed say to him who formed the thing, Why have you made me like this? That's the answer to that question. Yes or no? So the question from the thing, which is mankind, to thus an angel, an angel. Question from the thing, mankind. Why have you made me evil? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Why have you made me like this? Well, what is that? Is it, why have you, is it, do I say, why have you made me good? Why have you made me saved? No, you would answer the question, why have you made me evil? Now, consider that question. Who asked that question? Is it, who's out there saying, why have you made them evil? Verse 32 continues, I'm sorry, verse 22 continues. But it's so powerful. Now, the what is in that powerful thing? Go ahead and play it anyway. It means it's not in the text. What if, what if now God desired to show his wrath and to make known his power, having endured much, with much long suffering, and onto the vessels fitted for destruction? Fitted or prepared, and only prepared one time at Greek word. Another point, there, another point. What if God did this? That's what it says. What if God did this? Immediately, you have to ask yourself is this a hypothetical question? That infers that God didn't do this. Well, what if He did? Then what? Romans 9.23, what if God made known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which are he ordained beforehand for glory? What if he did that? What if God did that also? What if God did both these things? Thank you. The implication, the implication here is that he's doing either one. But what if he did? That will help you understand what's going on. Go ahead. It's the reciprocal. Look at the, look at the negative and see if you can figure out the positive from the negative. The inverse from, from the positive. The book of Hosea explains why he doesn't do it. What if, what if, what if? Well, here's why not. As does Exodus 33, 19, Psalm 20, 36, 5 through 7. His, his goodness, his graciousness, 
He doesn't do this. He doesn't tell people that you're not saved and you are saved. He doesn't do that. Why not? Why doesn't he do that? Why do we have to have the Calvinists do it for us? Or the Mormons or the Catholics or whoever group, whatever group wants to say he's saved and he's not saved. Why doesn't God do that? He doesn't do that. What if he did? How does he answer the question? I don't know if you know the answer. Why doesn't God do it? Why doesn't he call the best of the time to save and make things right? Why does he do it? I should inject the podcast and one of the things you Christ first name and the other and the other so, I'm saying the temple father has water poured into clay pots that were out there. This is what I'm saying. Those vessels, those clay pots, So, he tells his servants, go get those vessels of pots and put water in them. Just a hint, and water came to one, but that water out the pot sailed the water. And he said, Listen, that's the pot, and that's the way of everything. He did, and now he did. And that's the way of everything. And not everybody agrees with him, and he did it. Amen. You suppose that the living water, which is Christ, the water of life, Revelation 21 68, Revelation 23 1 through 3, John 4 14. Did he have living water flowing into the stone clay vessels to be restored? Someone would say, restored, they would say, resurrected. Did he say resurrected in the land? So how can he typify his resurrection from the beginning? At a wedding, who's he marrying? Who's involved in weddings with them? So that would be the student, and that would be the church. That's true of the scenario people have not heard. Obviously, this first miracle connects with the Zechariah 11 13 prophecy of the silver being thrown to the father, Isaiah 68 8. God is the and we're the father. He's the father. So the silver is thrown to the father. That's what Jesus Satan did. Why did they do it? How did they not do it? But they did it in love. Again, Matthew 27 5. Jesus throws that and then goes and hands himself. He has it all figured out. There's no room there and no room. And more says you get. He's been out in the movie by infinite numbers. He thought he could sterilize this mind and he could not. So the potter and the clay vessels and the silver. Silver is blood atonement. It was, it was separated in Exodus 30, 11 through 16. That shepherd was made of silver. So you bring silver is blood atonement now. The cross for salvation, if you will, the blood of Christ. Typifies the blood of Christ. Judas is throwing the blood of Christ at God. So he's throwing the blood of Christ at the cross. Anyway, Hosea is instructed by God. God spoke to the prophet named Salvation. He spoke to the prophet Salvation. He spoke to Salvation. He told you, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry. What is God's definition of harlotry? What does he consider adultery? Israel has committed great adultery, and God has commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Hosea 1, 1 through 13. That's what he said. That's the solution. 9.25. And Hosea obeyed, and he married Gomer. Uh-oh, I got another wedding. 
Obviously, Hosea and Gomer portray the Lord God and Israel. Hosea divorces Gomer in Hosea chapter 2, but at the conclusion of Hosea 2.23, Gomer, Gomer is restored. Hosea is to be called by her, my husband. Call me my husband. That is exactly what Israel will do because they are remarried to God at the end of the tribulation. We have to write and see. And who's invited to? That would be the bond for Satan after them. So we have this restoration by God. That's, that's the context of the third mystery. So Hosea and the third mystery. All you have to do to understand Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is read the book of Hosea. All you have to do to understand Romans 11, 10, 11, 9, 8, read the book of Hosea. You'll figure it out, hopefully. Maybe you won't. Call me later. Another element is again the Gentiles who are drafted in because the children of the adulterer Gomer, they bring charges against Gomer. Those are the children of the wife. Of the mother. They bring charges against their mother, Hosea 2 2. The inclusion of the Gentiles is the centerpiece of the third mystery that Paul reveals to the church of Rome and to the angels of Hosea and the fallen angels. He reveals it to everybody who will listen to him. And the church at Ephesus, they get to know it too. But today, just begin to associate the third mystery, Ephesians 1 2 and 3, with Hosea. And if you do that, you're going to immediately quell or dispel, dispel any notion that Ephesians supports or presents the predestination of individuals of God. It's not always here. Instead, it's a marriage proposal to her. And we know every wedding on the planet probably will go to Ephesians chapter 1. Husband, love your wife, this is what I'm saying. What's that? The wedding ceremony. Ephesians is marinated in wedding ceremony, but they say, no, it's not. It's, it's marinated in predestination. Oh my God. Again, Ephesians, this is the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? Why does he call it the body of Christ? But the body of Christ, the church, the virgin bride of Christ, it's the third mystery. Again, I can't say it's not enough. Paul says in Ephesians 32, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. Quoting Genesis 2.24, the man shall leave and be joined to his wife, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Also, look at Romans 11.25 again. It's a great mystery. This predestinational doctrine as it applies to individual salvation, would anybody describe that as a great mystery? He said, this is what it is. You're predestined to be saved and you're not. And I am. And you're still not. Is that a great mystery? A great is predestinational individual salvation theory multi-layered? Is it entangled? No. Or is it simple? I said from the beginning of this series, this is a simple concept. It can't be true based on that alone. How long will you love the simple? How long will you simple ones for you? Love simplicity is not what you to do. Well, they love it for a long time. It's been four and five hundred years now. They still love it. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. I say that all the time. Isaiah 55, 8, 55, 9. His ways are infinitely complicated. What is the most infinite complication? Is it the third mystery connecting to the other mysteries? Is it the body of Christ? Is it the marriage of the virgin bride? Is it the marriage and the divorce and the remarriage of the wife? 
is that a complex mystery? It goes all the way to the lampstand and the temple. Is that what is that complicated? Or is predestination or individual salvation of your which one's the most complicated? Door number one is going with nothing. Predestination, I have to be in the hospital. The man's inability to help us by God's omniscience with human and intelligent ability. That's the thing. But again, the artist in the book and the book is the man. He couldn't take what he saw. He was incredible. He was unable. His inability to resolve what he saw was a contradiction of scripture. So I'm going to tell you right now, Augustine's concept is the offspring of him. And his offspring is solved in failure. It's the offspring of predestination of theory. It's the offspring of ignorance. I can't take what he saw. So I'm going to say, I don't know. Let me take this one. I'm dumb as a rock, and that's what I'm going to say is wrong. That's the origin of the story. He thought it was a contradiction in Scripture. Okay. As we're now ending the Stevie Hilliard segment, right? We've got Stevie Hilliard at our time now. Allow me to ask questions that I consider relevant, not the people who accept them for doing that. Matthew 25, 41, the revealing of the lake of fire. He revealed the lake of fire. Did he hide the lake of fire and then reveal it? And if he hid the lake of fire and he revealed it, when did he do that? And that lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels. Now you see how he began to see them again in the whole Obviously, again, the lake of fire predates the creation of mankind and animals. Genesis 1, 31. And I think that it happened before mankind and animals and the mankind because the new world the second reading of the first reading. So when did he create the lake of fire? Did he create the lake of fire before he made the moon? Did he do that? He didn't do that. He waited until he did it. He went wrong to do it. If he didn't, why didn't he? He did. But he probably did it. He did it. But when you say you're a that's my question. But when you say you're a tradition, he's hiding things and he reveals them. And he reveals them to the angels and he reveals them to us. It's amazing what he's doing. But you have to ask, why am I doing it? And when is he doing it? And when you ask when, what's happening? Nothing's in the wrong. But you still have to ask because we're all in You don't know who the idiot is at the table that's eating. So did God create one third of his angels? Revelation 12, 4, Revelation 9, 25, Revelation 9, 15, 2 Peter 2, 4, 1, 2 Peter 2, 19, Luke 6, 1, 6, 1, 4. Did God create one third of his angels? I see that. Casting them in the lake of fire. Did he do that? Why did he leave the angels by himself? Because that's what the point is, isn't it? Mathematically, that's the ratio between 6,000 years and 6,000 years. And in Hebrew, it's 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 
So angels are not only recognized the 7,000 years mark, and that is the 60,000 years mark. Please go back there. Let's go to 7,000. Angels are thrown into the back of the 7,000 years. That's essentially the singular thing that we do for the entire time. Nothing like mine. So you have to say you get the person in that position. Is there a different answer? Because they don't didn't say that. They didn't say yes, he did. They didn't say, yeah, he did. Yes, no, he did. They never had a chance. And that question, I just gave you, uh, that raises a boat or a different boat. Is it your question? Is it your question? Clearly, predestination is something speaks to God who is unfaithful to one day. Whether they say it, whether they know it or not. That's what he thinks. Acts 14 16 says that God has allowed mankind to walk in his own way. Man has his own way. His way and God has his way. The only way is known is not by the past. There are differences in the Joseph is in the face of the Christian brothers and said, You know this is the thing that we need to do. So he was not saying this to him. God allowed this angel to give the son of the human being to God. I'm in the face of God. You know it. I didn't give it to you. I'm in the face of God. I didn't give it. You made yourself in the But God, I have taken this in the
But what about us? He's still screaming and they're predisposed. He's screaming. What about Isaiah 45 7? All form light and create darkness and make well being and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these. And he says, What about that? Huh? Come on, HDR, take what he got. The old King James renders Isaiah 45 7. No form to light and create darkness and make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And the love absolute is that, and he said, Oh, love me, son. Why is it that when he creates goodness, we get evil? He causes the evil to destroy the goodness. He didn't talk, he just says, don't, don't think of the same don't, and not to say it's the same body, not to say it's the same body, and not to say it's evil, not being good, and you, somehow, you can use it. It's crazy. That mechanism is not going to be used. Evil is the absence of peace. I make peace and feel evil. So he brings peace, and evil does it. This is obviously God's way of describing the problem of the fellow and the good thing else that we have. We have dinner, we have love, we have peace, we have love for him. It's the only way of the facts that he's coming to the truth. Adam and the woman are saying that we stay pleased with the promises they come to the truth. Why did God tell us that something from the woman? Why was he invisible? He looked to see what the truth was about. Why is this there? 
Um, April 16th, 